Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna-Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers to thrive on camera and in life, and to make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase, am I allowed to say that? Another one of those questions I get asked all the time, and I'm excited that here to discuss is a bona fide expert on the subject, Kareth Foster, who is a diversity engagement specialist and creator of the groundbreaking Inversity Methodology and other signature programs. Kareth is creating a seismic shift in diversity and culture in academic institutions, organizations, and corporations across America. And now I'm hoping also on the Camera Ready and Able podcast with conversations that are revolutionizing the way we address issues of diversity and leadership. Kareth's resume is truly diverse and kind of extraordinary. She is an alumna of Stevens College and Oxford University, started her career working in production on The View while she pursued a career in stand-up comedy, where our paths first crossed, because I was in those audiences. She's a popular speaker, TV and radio personality, author of Laugh Your Way to Happiness, and You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy, amen. She's an entrepreneur, wife and mother, and a positive force of change with her sense of duty, service, and riotous sense of humor. Welcome to the podcast, Kareth. Barbara, thank you so much for having me. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for ages. So diving right in, why do we ask ourselves and others, am I allowed to say that? Well, I think it's a, a twofold question, right? One is most people are good people, right? We care. We're empathetic. We don't want to offend anyone and hurt anyone's feelings. But we also are very prevalently in this day and age of cancel culture, where if you make one slip up, if you say the wrong thing, if you make one faux pas, if you misspeak, people want to hang you out to dry. And it happens regularly. And as things evolve from fashion to, you know, media and, and movies and music and style and taste. So so does the, the English language, right? And words that meant something or phrases that meant something 20, 30 years ago now have a different meaning. Now there are new words. There's new vernacular. I mean, inversity included, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are, you know, kind of tiptoeing and walking on eggshells, especially when their jobs, their reputations um, their livelihoods are on the line. All of it comes from a place of fear. And I love that you're really taking this idea of how to go from safe to bold. But now to your point, it really is actually scary because before it was just like the only person you were really afraid of was you know, yourself or your subconscious. Now you never know who's going to take what you said and, and turn it around. So how do we go from safe to bold? So, yeah, I... I that's a new term, right? Psychologically safe. And that's what a lot of companies and organizations from, you know, media to, to you know, actual corporations, you know, C-suite type spaces are worried about, like having psychological safety. Now, I think there's a misnomer and that people think that psychological safety is the same as safe spaces. Mm. And I have a problem with safe spaces because while I understand why they've been implemented, right, to give people a a haven, if you will, right, from some of the negativity that the outside world can can bring on. Um, my concern is that if that's all you're relying on, you're not going to have an opportunity to build a thick skin. 
You're not going to have an opportunity for growth. You're not going to have an opportunity for exposure, not only for yourself, but for the other people who need to hear what your experience is. Now, psychological safety is when you create an environment, a space where people are allowed to make a mistake, to say the wrong thing without fear of, you know, extreme retribution and cancellation. It's, you know what, we're human beings coming to the table. We're not perfect. So if someone does misspeak or has a faux pas, this is an opportunity to call someone in versus out. Right. And that also seems to be a pretty popular thing right now, especially online. You know, somebody says something wrong, like people are ready like to jump and attack and accuse. And it's so unforgiving. And that it is not any type of environment to encourage someone to learn or to change or to modify their behavior. If anything, they'll double down. Right. I mean, it's like being a kid. You know, did you learn better when someone said, you know what, I'm, I'm not proud of you. This is how we were going to behave. This is how we're going to move forward. Or if you got a spanking repeatedly or even just one and you were embarrassed and ashamed, you know, that's not the methodology that's working. And I think that's what we've been doing in the diversity and inclusion space, right? We've been shaming people. We've been calling them out versus calling them in. We've been saying, you know, you will never get this because you will never know what this person's experience is. So you will always be the enemy. You will always be the outlier. You will always be the villain. And in doing that, we're also also continually making people the victims and we're not allowing people to have agency. And we're, you know, basically saying you're fragile. You can't handle it. This is how you always be. This is how you always be seen. And I think that's terribly unfair for women, for people of color, for people in the LGBT plus community, for people who are disabled, for anybody who fits into that marginalized category to perpetually be the victim. Um, that basically says you will always be in this space. You will never have room to evolve, to move up, to 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 get to the next level. Um, and that's damaging. That's damaging to people's psyche as much as it is damaging to tell someone you're always going to be the bad guy. How do people speak up? Because there is a lot of fear of retribution, the idea that you'll never get hired. Well, I think you said a key term there, right? Intention. What's the intention? And you will never know someone's intention if you don't ask. And this is where we have to all sharpen our communication skills. Mm. And we have to step up and we have to be, go from safe to brave to say, well, what did you mean by that? Where did that come from? Because guess what? We can misinterpret anything. As we all know, you know, especially us with the, the theater and entertainment background, as my professor in college used to say, we're all the stars of our own, of our own one person play. <laughs> Right. And we forget that we are sharing the stage with multiple other players. And sometimes we have to take the spotlight off of us to see what's going on in someone else's world. And the only way to do that is to actually be curious, to communicate, to ask questions and not be afraid of the answer that you're going to get. Right. Not let your ego step into play and take everything personally, because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but you won't know if you can't have an authentic conversation in which there is grace, which you there is an opportunity for forgiveness, in which there is an, an openness and a willingness to learn and not make it all about you. And that is challenging, especially for people who are in media, because we do have some pretty grandiose egos. We, we're, very, we're hypersensitive. 
I know comedians are like, we may seem extremely brave and strong and have a lot of bravado when we get up on stage because we're commanding it. But behind the scenes, you know, there are people who are very scared and terrified. And that's part of why they do what they do, right? Because that, that, that part is fulfilling that space of, of fear and discomfort. Um, and so, you know, but th that's such a human aspect and a human quality. And I think, you know, I, I wrote the book, You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. And that really ties into this message because spoiler alert, there is no such thing as perfection, right? Of course we should strive for excellence. But this idea that we think we're supposed to be perfect and, you know, that's been kind of the monkey on so many of our backs for so long. And I know when I was writing the book, when I had the epiphany about it, I'm like, oh my God, how much of my life have I spent trying to be the perfect student, the perfect daughter, the perfect friend, the perfect employee, the perfect performer, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect mom, right? And what is that costing me? And it was costing me peace. It was costing me money. It was costing me happiness. It was costing me confidence. And if I could let go of that idea of perfection, it would, it just, it's, it, it, it's like a refrigerator off your back. It changes your world. However, even when we recognize it within ourselves, we still expect perfection in other people. We want them to be perfect. We want them to say the right thing. And when they're not, guess what that allows? That allows for the biases and the stereotypes we have to come in full play. One of my tenets is we always have to check in with ourselves. And one of them is, is to actually say, not only like, how am I feeling, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but, you know, do I bring any bias to the situation when I'm like looking at a script or, you know, for me, I can walk into a room and I'm going to do a training and I'm sizing up and I have to catch myself if I'm making decisions about people I haven't met yet. Irvin Spug was very human based on, you know, whatever. They're just their physiology, et cetera, et cetera. We all do it. Um, all and do it's it. That's exactly it. We all do it. We all do it. It's part of human nature. It's part of our human design. And the idea isn't to go in a corner and beat yourself up because, oh, you're bad. for No, the idea is catch yourself when it has happening, when it has happened so that I tell people be selfish about it so that you're not missing out on opportunities, experiences, and relationships. And if you are as empathetic and caring as you believe you are, then why would you want anybody else to miss out on opportunities, experiences, and relationships? I think it goes back to what you said in the very, very beginning, which is just assume good intentions, that most people are good people. I'd love to move on though right now to yeah. like how you actually got into this work. And it's an amazing story that I'm gonna let you share. Sure. So yeah, as you said in the beginning, I began as a broadcast journalism person. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a degree both at a local level at, at an ABC affiliate in Missouri. Right after school, I moved to New York to start working for The View on a network national level. You know, and at the time, who better than Barbara Walters to have as a boss if you think, you know, this is the path you're taking. Um, while I got was there, I found stand-up comedy, or rather it found me. And what always was kind of nagging me in the back of my head was, you know, since I was young, I wanted to be this beacon of light and truth. I wanted to be the person on the TV. I was going to be the next Oprah, the next Connie Chung. I was going to be, you know, Katie Couric out there bringing the world together, you know, getting people to, to like, you know, have these enlightened moments and, you know, have these epiphanies of like, look at how 
much we actually have in common and how we can come together and work together and what a great world we can make this place. And it, it was kind of a, I don't know, idealistic view of how the media works. <laughs> because as you know, you know, behind the scenes, there's a lot of red tape. There's, you know, you have to do what the networks say, you have to do what the sponsors say, um, you know, you get to tell versions of the truth. But with stand-up, you got to tell your truth and there was no censorship and you got to be authentically yourself. And that was the beauty of it. And that vehicle, comedy, really, I credit that with helping me become a master communicator because as you know, as someone who has seen thousands and thousands of hours of stand-up, whether in live or on, on you know, recording, um, you have to be able, number one rule in comedy is be funny but it's know your audience, like right after that, it's know your audience. And if you are going to be successful as a comic or a speaker or a leader, you have to incorporate that. And that means you have to be able to convey a concept, an idea, a theory, a thought process to your audience. And that means you can't speak over their heads and you can't talk down to them, not if you want it to be received. And that, to, that skill is, I think, probably 90% of why I have the success that I do. And I get to be funny and use humor because humor is just the most amazing tool in education to break the walls down, to create a neutral space, especially for something as sensitive as diversity and inclusion. Um, but that vehicle of comedy led me to a position on air with a man named Don Imus, who was the original shock jock for pre-Howard Stern. Um, and he got in trouble in 2007 for some disparaging remarks about the Rutgers women's basketball team. I share about it in my TEDx talk. And um, I was brought on to quote unquote, diversify the staff and have a national dialogue about race and racism in America. And that was really kind of what pushed me in this direction because I remember kind of just looking at, well, if we've been having diversity programming for so long, for decades now, why does it feel like two steps forward, 10 steps back? What's what's happening or what's not happening? What's the missing piece of the puzzle? And then what happened? Um, I That was my tale of two cities job. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times because I was brought on to fulfill what I thought I was supposed to do, be that beacon of light and truth. It was an opportunity to be the anti-stereotype of what we see of Black women in the media. Because at the time, you know, Oprah didn't have her daily show anymore. There was no Shonda Rhimes or Viola Davis or Kerry Washington. or, um, And so I, I saw this as an amazing opportunity to be a representation of a, a population that really wasn't getting a lot of positive media in that respect. And um, and have these really thoughtful, what I thought were going to be thoughtful conversations, but about a year in, Imus got comfortable being back on the air and essentially wanted me to do and say things that I wasn't okay with. And mm. he wanted me to be the voice he couldn't be. And when I refused, um, he went out of his way to make my life a living hell. Yeah. And it was hard. I mean, it was hard. Like I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And I remember thinking, I'm either going to Bali or to Bellevue. <laughs> That's actually like, a great line. Right? That's a lot to heal from. That, it was a lot. You it was internalize that. You carry that for a long time. I met other women who had worked with him. And one woman, he, well, I can't say he, she allowed him to rob her 
of decades of her life because she, she left the media business. She was so hurt by what he did. And I remember when she told me that I was like, I'll be damned if I let him rob me of any of that stuff. And it was about 18 months it took me to recover. And I, I did go to Bali, by the way, because I'm like, if I'm spending that kind of money, I'm going someplace pretty. <laughs> Good on you. And I, re- I, I had to start healing. Yeah. But I'm so grateful for that experience, Barbara. And this is what I say when I talk about people being fragile and, and the misnomer that we are fragile. Because, yeah, that could have broken me if I let it. But something deep inside of me was like, no, that's not. No, he doesn't deserve to do that to you you don't deserve to have that taken away from you go within pull up your big girl panties figure it out and it was a process I am not gonna lie like I I was also in a personal relationship that was very emotionally abusive at work I was like it was like it was at every corner every turn and when I was in Bali this happened to me I got very sick by the way like extreme like it's we think of Bali as like the beaches and the sunsets and, and that's part of it. But I was in the center of the island, which is rainforest, not the best place for an asthmatic. <laughs> I had one of the worst yeah. asthma experiences of my life. I couldn't breathe. I, my Also, my health was terrible. My cortisol levels had been through the roof because of work. And I tell the people I'm with, I need to get to the hospital because I need prednisone. I need a shot of adrenaline. I probably need a nebulizer treatment because if I die here, my mother's going to fly over to the other side of the world, revive me <laughs> and kill me again for dying on the other side of the planet. They're like, no, no, no. You don't need to go to the hospital. We have this Western woman who <laughs> who runs the fertility clinic in town. I'm like, okay, not the part of my body I'm having a problem with. But they were so insistent. And I really, I just, I surrendered. Barbara, I surrendered. I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust the universe. I'm going to trust God. This is what's supposed to be happening. I'm like, fine. And they took me to this woman who had this white blonde hair, these aqua blue eyes. And she cupped my back and gave me acupuncture. And she opened my lungs. She saved my life. She saved my life literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Because she, she, she's like, show me your tongue. I show her my tongue. She's like, oh, honey, you're damp, which is you know, one of the Chinese medicine terminologies for basically pretty messed up. <laughs> and she goes, you need to see me every day that you're here. I was there for two weeks. And I did. And by about day two or three, we started talking. And she's like, honey, how did, how did you get here? And I said, well, you know, I took a plane. She goes, no, how did you get into this physical state? I was so out of it, Barbara. <laughs> I was taking it with, she goes, no, in the state that you're in. And I, I said, well, you know, my boss is mean. My boyfriend's mean. I don't get it. I'm the nicest person I know. I just, I don't understand. And she said something that changed my life. She goes, sweetie, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're the constant. And I remember being appalled. I was livid. I was so mad. I was like, how dare she imply that I have anything to do with what's going on in my life. (laughs) And it took months. It really took months of that marinating for me to realize she wasn't accusing me Mm -hmm. of doing anything wrong. She, She wasn't saying I was responsible for their behavior. What I was responsible for though, was allowing that treatment to come in. Mm -hmm. In whatever way I was doing that. Right. And part of it was I wasn't valuing myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't treating myself well. I obviously had set myself up to be in that space where 
that abuse was okay. And while I wasn't, you know, abusing myself in the way that we think, I wasn't taking drugs or, you know, drinking or sleeping around, I wasn't valuing me. I wasn't taking care of Kareth. And when that flip switched or that switch flipped, it changed everything. It changed everything. And I started living again so intentionally. Mm-hmm. I started taking care of myself, what I was eating, how I was treating my body, getting enough sleep. I, I mean, I just immersed myself in spiritual. I'd moved out to LA by this time from New York. And I, I saw a shaman. I found a church I liked. I was doing yoga. I was just everything to just nourish myself and love me. And honest to God, about three months after that, and I made a list because I'm like, I want to get married. I want to have kids. And again, very intentionally, I made a list of the person that I wanted to find and be with. It took a couple of weeks and I put it out there to the universe. And two weeks later, I met my husband. Oh, I love that story. You're a master manifester. I am. I love that. So how do we get from this amazing awakening and transformation to launching your business? Sure. So there was another incident I didn't touch on, but right before, well, right after actually I left Imus and you'll probably remember the story. It happened in 2010. Um, Coincidentally, a Rutgers university student by the name of Tyler Clemente, Mm -hmm. he took his life by jumping off the George Washington bridge. And he did so after he was outed by his roommate and some peers, they secretly recorded him in an intimate situation. And I just remember my heart just breaking. Mm -hmm because it just seems so cruel and so awful that anybody would think they're alone for whatever it is they think sets them apart from the status quo be it their sexuality their gender their ethnicity their socioeconomic status nobody should feel that way and that was the beginning of what was initially something I called stereotyped 101 and it was programming that I created to take to colleges and universities so that I could deliver the message of belonging of you're not by yourself, you're, you're not alone. We're all in this boat together. It may look different from the optics and the Instagrams and the, you know, the, the, the social media aspects of things, but that's not the real story behind the screen. So let's figure out how to come together, how to honor each other and ourselves so that we never have to get to that place where contemplating or actually taking your life is, is the only option you feel like you have. Mm. You know what I'm hearing in there too, is this idea that we're all leaders, right? And that we can display leadership at any moment of the day, yeah. right? When, you know, when we see something, experience something. And so whether that's advocating for ourselves or being an ally and an advocate for somebody else. Yeah. There are a couple of things, but one, you just use the word belonging, which I love. So I wanted to touch into some of the Words that you use, because one of your phrases that I love is diversity without division. Mm -hmm. And then also that belonging needs to be added to DEI so that it's DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So walk us through why that is so important. Sure. Well, there's a, a really popular analogy that says, you know, diversity is being invited to the dance, right? Inclusion is being asked to dance. And I think belonging is getting to pick some of the music, right? Getting to guest DJ, Mm. getting to to bring who you are to the table 
and it being accepted, right? And that doesn't mean not professional, but it means, you know, however you wear your hair, whatever your lifestyle is, you know, you shouldn't have to hide in the corners. You shouldn't be able to put up a picture of your significant other because you're scared. Um, you know, and it is always challenging when we have different people from different backgrounds and experiences. And, you know, the, I think the, the rule was always just like at dinner tables, you know, you don't talk about sex, politics, or religion. And now that seems to be the topic du jour, right? <laughs> how do you not talk about those things? Or how do you talk about it in a way where it's not about judgment, right? Um, and it's not about trying to change someone else's belief system, because this really isn't about belief systems. I think everybody's entitled to their beliefs. This is about behavior and how we treat one another and doing so respectfully, honoring another person as our fellow human being and seeing the value in someone because we see more than just their quote unquote label or title. That's what belonging is. A lot of the stuff obviously starts at the top. And people work really hard, but you start to get very siloed and you're in your bubble. So how do you actually, I mean, seriously, how do you explain that to someone who's at the very top? Right. right. No, there absolutely is a sense of disconnection. And that's why it is imperative that you enroll leadership and CEOs into this conversation. And I work with a lot of CEOs who understand that and most of them, quite honestly, we talk about fear. They're terrified of doing mm, the wrong thing. And especially if they're straight white men, they, you know, but they've been told for, you know, now quite some time, well, you're never going to get it. Then that's, they believe that narrative, right? But if you flip the script and say, look, you won't ever understand what it's like to be a gay Asian man. Just like I won't understand what it's like to be a, a trans woman or, a, you know, like someone who speaks English as a second language. But that doesn't take away from their human experience. And we can have what I call, I, I ask people to, part of the adversity methodology is care, right? And care is an acronym for conscious empathy, active listening, responsible reactions, and environmental awareness. And when you can apply those four things, and you aren't going to be able to do it all the time, perfectly, every day of the week. But it's, you know, finding those, those I call them empathy insights right? Where you can have that moment. And sometimes they happen at the most random times. You know, I I was flying from Dallas to New York several months ago and I my younger daughter was like a string bane, right? Skinny little thing. But when she was passed out cold at four o'clock in the morning, I had to get her dressed for a six o'clock flight. It was dead weight. <laughs> and I'm dressing her, but there's no light outside. It's dark. It's, and I just had a moment where I thought, oh my God, there are people who have to do this every day with their adult children. Mm. And then they have to go to work, right? Or they have to do, like, this is their lives every day. And first I counted my blessings that it wasn't my every day. But I thought, oh my God, the empathy that I now have for people who have children who are either, you know, so extremely on the, the spectrum that they have to, or disabled or whatever. And, and that's, if we can allow ourselves to have those moments, right? You know, I, I had a, a client, we were at, at a meeting in Denver and he was white and his son married a black woman and one of her grandparents died. And so his family, but he went to the funeral and he was in this church that was basically all black. They were the only white people there. And he had this empathy inside of, oh my God, I'm the only one that's like me here. 
this must be what it feels like for the black people in my company or the women who are the only ones in the boardroom. Like, and it was so powerful when you can allow yourselves to have that and feel that other part of humanity come into play. And you remember that, you know, again, we're not perfect. We're not going to completely kibosh the biases that we have. The idea is to just catch it when it comes up so that you're not missing out or you're not keeping someone else from missing out. Mm. No, that was beautiful. And I just want to acknowledge while we're recording this in July of 2023, that it's Disability Pride Month. And that is a reminder, just as what you said, that we can't always see a disability. Mm. And just to stop and and have some compassion and and grace. Because I just went through my own health things and having a, a hip replaced last year. And I'm a little humbled that it took that for me to realize how inaccessible New York City is. Well, I'm in the same boat. I haven't spoken about it publicly, but I've been told I'm supposed to get a hip replacement and I struggle oh, sometimes. Yeah. Okay. We can talk offline. Yeah. It's a, it, but it's, it's, it's a, it, that too is a wondrous thing and yeah. the immense gratitude I have for having access to the surgery and realizing it should be, you know, a right, not a privilege. Yes. Yes. And, and that level of care. So now, something we talked about before I hit the record button because it goes back to diversity without division is because I love to talk about the media space is how the media is responsible for a lot of the divisions and, and keeping it a divisive conversation. And, and how do we, you know, I've thought about how to work around that, but we got, this came up for anyone listening, a little bit of background because just very recently, a number of of black women in Hollywood with senior positions and DEI have left their jobs. So that's the headline. If you Google it, that's the headline. Yeah, yeah. And and you right away said, hey, that's not the whole story. That's not. It's not the whole story. And and we, you know, we are the instant gratification generation, right? We want to get everything. And we only read the headlines. And we don't delve further sometimes, which is also what causes a lot of controversy. Because people, you know, see one headline and title and they don't read the article. Just like they read the front page of the paper. They don't go to page seven or eight where the real news is. Um, it's, it's kind of the same with this scenario. And, you know, there were a couple instances where the black women who were, you know, heads of diversity for some major studios, major production companies, um, one was simply moving on and being replaced by another person of color. Actually, I think it was a black man who happened to be gay. Um, there was another situation where someone was, you know, retiring like it just was kind of the again this perfect storm and this like hey let's let's pick this out and put it out there and and cause a little bit of a a stir and the media loves to do that and that was kind of the problem I had while I was in media because I saw how much of it was driven by fear right it was driven by let's stir the pot let's get people riled up Let's and, and we see it constantly. It just doesn't matter what network you watch. If you're watching MSNBC, CNN, like they know, you know, Fox, they know how to play to their audiences. They know how to get people like, you know, really engrossed in something um, and, and stir our emotions. Like that's, it's, it's kind of, manip not kind of, it is manipulative. So you have to be able as a person with agency over your emotions and over your life to say, you know what, I'm taking everything with a grain of salt. I will do my own research. I will look to see if there's, you, should, you have to become your own journalist. You yes. have to find two to three to four, um, you know, resources 
that confirm what was being said. Because you will only get half the story if you're reading the headlines, maybe not even half. That is so well said. So it's just a reminder. It's on all of us. Read the article before you forward. Do your own research to your point. I mean, because I think we've all been caught out, you know, and hopefully it wasn't too extreme, but there are times we get riled and then you find out, oh, that's actually from five years ago, Barb. And also just to your point, a little inside baseball, having worked um, in this space in entertainment, that one of the ways you get people to click is by positioning as something happened. And then you, at the very bottom of the article say, um, it's either unconfirmed or it didn't happen. Right. 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 You know, why is so-and-so doing such and such? And then it get to the bottom of the article. It's like, because they're not. When they put up the pictures of, you know, this celebrity died and you didn't even know it. And it's pictures of celebrities that are still alive. Right. But you're clicking to it. Oh my God. I didn't know they, what? What happened? <laughs> it's, it's a game they play and we fall for it hook, line and sinker. So we have to just really be on top of things. And, you know, personally, I, I've been on the news more than I've watched it in the past couple of years. I mean, I stay informed. I, I read, I, but I, I, you know, having been in it, like worked in it, I also know how life draining it can be sometimes because so much of it is either drives your adrenaline up, right? Or it's depressing or it's bad or it's sad or it's, and like, we don't, one of the tenets of, there's seven principles of adversity. And one of the last ones before conscious communication is energy. And when I talk about energy, I talk about not just, you know, the energy that we're giving off because we are we're electrical like all of us it's it's we have heart energy that radiates six feet to another human being which makes it kind of interesting that whole six feet apart thing that we had to go through with the pandemic um but you know what is generating your energy right from the food that you eat that you intake to the sleep that you get to the people you surround yourself by to the media that you're consuming the music you listen to you know, this will affect you. And they found that, you know, people who don't consume certain amounts of media um, are happier, right? They they just have a, a better outlook. They're more optimistic. And I know that that shifted for me when I, because we don't have regular TV. I mean, yeah, we've got like Netflix and um, we, we just stopped with Disney Plus, but we, you know, not seeing the commercials, not seeing all of the news and the horrible story, like, I feel so much lighter, Barbara. Mm-hmm. You and know, to that point, I want to give I want to give a shout out to Axios. I don't know if you're familiar with the platform. Yeah, but I but I, I I'm a huge fan because of the intention and energy they put behind the, you know really essential stories. And then also Joanna Masca, who I had on the podcast very recently, um, who had worked for President Obama for eight years, but her she's constantly on the news questioning, is this story of value to the American people? Because we're always, you know, like anybody, distracted by the the whatever. And but she's like, but they still don't have water in Flint, Michigan. I think that maybe we should be focusing our energy there. And so that's also a really good reminder for us all. In closing, I want to ask you, because I love your motto. When you said, if you can laugh at it, you can get through it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think, I think we forget sometimes the power of laughter, the power of humor. Um, I, I don't think it's a mistake that some of the funniest sitcom episodes have to do with like a funeral scene or someone died. And obviously there's nothing funny about death in and of itself, right? It's tragic. It's an ending, 
but that's how we cope. That's how we heal. It's there's catharsis in laughter. Um, one of the best experiences I've ever had in my 20 plus years of doing stand-up comedy was at a, a women only show in Bud Lake, New Jersey called Ladies of Laughter put on by um, Jody Weiner, bless her soul. She just passed, but we, it was myself, Liam Lord, I think was there, Sherry Davey, and I think it was Maureen Langan. And after the show, what was so cool about it was there was no alcohol allowed. So people were there and they were laughing and they were boisterous and it wasn't like artificially induced, like it was real. And after the show, people are coming up to us and saying, oh, that was so funny, you were so great. And of course that's part of the payment as a comic, right? Those accolades. And this one woman makes a beeline. It was me, Sherry and, um, and Leanne and she makes a beeline and I was in the middle of the three of us. And the first words out of her mouth were, my son was killed six months ago. And we're like, like, we weren't expecting that. And she said, tonight was the first time I've laughed mm. since. I still cheer up when I think about this. And she gave us this hug and she kissed me on the forehead. And that was worth more than any paycheck mm -hmm. to be able to give that gift to someone else, to give them an escape for 60 minutes from their pain, from their trauma. And if we can understand and, and remember that, you know, laughter doesn't have to be cruel. It doesn't have to be callous or, and it doesn't even have to be blue, right? I mean, yeah, there are different genres and, and it's subjective. Like that's the beauty and the curse. But being able to give the gift of laughter and to receive it is, is, is a blessing and it is a gift. And that's why I honor, you know, so many of my my comrades, if you will, still in the comedy business who are out there doing it because it is it is a grind. It's not for the weak of spirit or faint of heart. And that's why if you can laugh at something, you can get through it, because what you're saying is that has no power over me. That's not going to destroy me. That's not going to take me down. Oh, Kareth, please tell me you'll come back. This was so fantastic. In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you're prepping a big pitch, I'd love to help you. Please shoot me a note via my website, ableintermedia.com, and be sure to download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.